Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Pete Saved by the Bell. To be more like Pete, go to patreon.com, search for Joe Marler Show and become an official sponsor today. You're listening to The Marler Show. It isn't on the radio. It's a podcast, fool. You listen anywhere you go. The Joe Marler Show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. I'm really sorry if that was not a great opening line, but I, I can't do a lot about it. What has happened to your voice, Joe? I don't know. Now, we were out relatively late last night. Um, we went to an art gallery and then a museum. <laughs> and then we just, the museum stayed open till midnight. That's <laughs> why we were a, There was a new exhibition New on. exhibition. Uh, it was a very famous, well-known artist, um, Denzel Bailey, was yeah. exhibiting his new weapons of choice being a vigilante mm. uh, in America. Yeah, and, and the result, I mean, it was an excellent exhibition, the result is that you're quite croaky. I saw you at midnight, Joe, drinking a beverage which I didn't expect to see you drinking at midnight, which was a lemon and ginger tea. It actually had honey in it as well, Tom. It seems to have done absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I did question myself when uh, Steve... The producer looked over to me and he said, oh no. I said, what? He said, what are we going to do about your voice? I went, what's wrong with my voice? He was like, oh my God, we've got to record tomorrow. Don't worry, I'll get you a lemon ginger tea. (laughs) And then he orders me a lemon and ginger tea on this night out we were meant to have. After the museum. After the museum uh, gallery art place. And I thought, oh, okay, this is usually how my nights end these days. Now, I guess you hit a certain age and you go, you're not chasing the night anymore. You're just, your nightcap is a lemon and ginger and honey tea. If you're Steve. (laughs) And me now, apparently. (laughs) Well, it doesn't seem to have made any difference, Joe. I hope it holds together because today's guest is an absolute cracker. It's a woman who grew up in a cult, spent her childhood in a cult, and then subsequently joined Joe at least five other cults. She's a cult addict. You could say that, Joe. I you... did just say that. Should we get her on? Yeah, come on in. Bexy, I'm going to give you the warning. Who's written give... penis on my notes? Where... <laughs> Steve, did you do that? You're such a wanker. <laughs> Can you not look at me? Man? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Our guest today... Oh, God, my voice. Um... <clears throat> Our guest today is Bexie Cameron. She grew up in a cult. Her new book is called Cult Following. Hello, Bexie. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for not looking at me for that bit. (laughs) 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 Joe, would you like me to ask the first question so you can recover and have your coffee? Uh, Yes, please. 
So, Bexy, you grew up in a cult called the Children of God. Um, tell us a bit more about the Children of God. Sounds quite nice from the outside. Doesn't it? Just children of God. We're all children of God. Yeah, it's good branding, isn't it, considering what branding. they got up to. Um, where do you start with the Children of God? I mean, I could start with my parents' journey. I could start with the cult leader, which I think is probably where most people like to start because that's the most kind of deviant predatory part of the group um it was started by a man called david berg in 1968 during a time when i think the world was ripe for cults there were so many that started at that time period because vietnam war the hippie revolution and i think also influx of acid and stuff like that that was opening up people's minds to new ideas and this guy essentially i believe and this is the weird thing when you start writing a book, or the, my experience of it was, almost like you become a detective of your own history. And that's essentially what I did. I didn't know much about David Berg, except for what he had told us about himself, because I was inside the cult. So when I started writing the book, I started to research what this man was all about, other people's stories about him, even his children's histories of what this guy was like. And it just became, you know, when you watch a, a a documentary or a, a murder series and there's the the murder wall they call it where there's all the strings going left and right and pictures and everything and you start to build a picture of what this guy was like and essentially he was a predator he was a paedophile um i don't know if i can swear on this show you do what the fuck you want to do he on this was show. an absolute piece of shit essentially <laughs> is how i would describe this man and i wanted more <laughs> We were you'd a fucking gone, piece of shit. Or? Yeah, you'd gone like obviously describing him with the the proper words without <clears throat> swearing, and they were dark enough. Yeah. And then when you said, "Can we swear?" I wanted more yeah. than just he was a he was a piece of shit. Piece I wanted of he shit. was a fucking cunt bag. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, that was the other way. That was completely the other way. The, but the thing that's interesting about it for me is this man had like he stole so much of my airtime as a child because we had to listen to his ramblings every single day. Everything from what he dreamt that night to to the to his bowel movements. We would have what? to listen to. He would write like about how he'd taken a shit that day and it's just like he was put on this pedestal and he shouldn't have been so when I say he was a piece of shit it's because I want to reduce him to what he was he was a man who should have never been in the position that he was he was a man who should have never been able to persuade people that he was a channel to God and somehow he did and that's the baffle for me how did David Berg persuade my parents that he was a channel to God and if you can do that then you can persuade people to do anything because it's no longer about the man. It's about this divine kind of channel somewhere else. So that's essentially um, how I think he managed to get people to do pretty unspeakable things in his name because of the fact that he had that persuasion. But yeah, he was just a guy from the United States who you know was born in the 20s and he showed, and this is what I found in my research, deviant behavior long before he started a group and i think that's the question that a lot of people have it's like did power and money and sex corrupt this man it's like he was corrupt from the outset and i do believe that he created this group with deviant ideas in mind it wasn't like it happened 10 years later i don't know how much you guys know about the children of god but some of their bigger beliefs were things like flirty fishing which essentially getting the mums to be prostitutes for jesus I will have sex with you, you give me money, and that's my way of showing you the Lord's love. I mean, it's genius in a way, isn't it, to kind of come up with that. Flirty? Flirty fishing. Again, a really How nice brand. How the fuck brand. have they named that? 
Flirty, flirty fishing, fishing sounds like a party game. It doesn't it? It sounds quite, you know, it sounds quite jazz handsy. As soon as it? you said flirty fishing, I went, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but okay. I wanted a little bit more to it. And then you discovered, I was like, fucking, I didn't want that much. I did not. <laughs> that is horrible. So basically, it comes from a Bible verse, again, easily kind of twisted words from the scripture, which was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, which is something that Jesus said to his disciples. David Berg turned that into, join my group and I'll turn you into a prostitute. So, uh, I mean, it's quite a step change in the message. Isn't it? But that's what he'd managed to do was take scriptures and twist them to his own benefit. So, for example, he are we lived by something that we called the law of love. And the law of love, again, comes from a Bible verse. But what he turned that into was you can have a child bride and you can sexually abuse children. So this man who was, you know, not that smart, came from an ordinary background, ordinary background. You know, his mother was an evangelist, sure, but nothing that would make you go, you didn't have magical powers. You know, that's what I wanted when I was researching it. As you keep saying, I wanted more. I wanted to know what he had. He wasn't even, like, handsome, like some of the cult leaders. You know, he didn't have the pizzazz of, like, even a Koresh or something like that. He was I've a- just Googled him, and I can't work... I mean, it's really judgmental. You're going to say he's ugly. Is he? Is he? I look at him and I go, well, it's obvious that he was what he was. Okay. Yeah. But do I think that because I know that and my mind is just interpreted as, well, yeah. But if I, if you'd have come in here and said, this guy's raised millions of pounds for all these wonderful charities and he's a great human, I would then maybe look at it and go, I you'd wouldn't still, say he's minging. You'd still think he's a pervert. Come on, mate. Look at those eyes. <laughs> no, Look I'm at trying those to work out. That's eyes. what I'm trying to work out. <laughs> Honestly. Would I still think actually It's written all over his face. So here's something you might find interesting. Um, and I've got this written about this in, my, in one of the chapters in my book. I didn't see a photograph of him until I was 13 years old. Because they did everything they could to protect the anonymity of this piece of shit. So... Um, we grew up with books about him where he was, the head of him was drawn onto photographs where he was either a lion or a really handsome man, normally topless, long flowing hair, quite good looking, always wearing robes and everyone else in the picture didn't have their anonymity hidden. And if we're going to get really dark about it, in some of the books where, you know, it was essentially child pornography, all of the adults in the pictures had their faces anonymous with these drawings of cartoons while the children in the pictures are completely like not anonymous to I'm trying to say in in the most delicate way I possibly can Mm. but I didn't see a photograph of him until the day that he died and then it was like well now we can show you pictures of him and I remember I'd grown up with this looking at pictures of this man our dictator which is how I saw him as a lion, as this regal creature. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at what you're looking at now, sunken in eyes, you know, very little eyebrows, the face of somebody that has... And when I saw it, I had a real hold on me where I just was looking at this photograph going, this is the man that we've been listening to. This is the man who I have to listen how he, you know, takes a dump in the morning. This is the man that dictates every part of my life. And he changed with the wind. Whenever he changed as a dictator, we followed. So he could change our lives in an absolute instance. So I understand what you're experiencing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we can have... A little counselling session afterwards. No, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a piece of shit. I'm here okay. for you. Are your parents still around? My parents are still in the group. Have you, your parents are group. still in the group? So it's so this cult is still going. Well, let's let's be you know realistic about it. The group is now this kind of 
shambles of what it once was. You know, at one point, it, they say they had up to 25,000 members at one point. It was massive. It was in over 100 countries. Academics think it, think it was 10,000 rather than 25,000. So, like, it was... It, but it was still big. And then all the second generation left because why would we stay? We were not raised there with this feelings of enlightenment and being like, oh, my God, I've changed my life and I'm going to change the world. We were born into something that exploited us. So, of course, we all left. So now what is left is this kind of husk of a group. We've got, you know, a bunch of geriatrics that have rebranded themselves as the Family International. And I'm the sure... Family that, International? Yeah, exactly. Another like a soul band. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Again, it's, it's it's clever branding, isn't it? Flirty fishing, you know, family international. But in all seriousness, now they, they are kind of powerless. They don't have any children to exploit anymore. They are just people that kind of believe the same things. And here's the gutting bit for them. Imagine joining a group where you were told you were never going to get old because the rapture was going to happen. So for my parents, they were going to reach about, you know, 40 years old. And then they were going to be taken up by Jesus in the end of days to live for a thousand years. Incredible idea, right? And then they got told about three or four years ago that because they've done such a great job of evangelizing the world, that the end of the world's now been t taken back 50 years. My parents gutted. You know, they didn't have to think they were going to worry about like having to have, you know, you know, be, become like on a Zimmer frame and, you know, start having bits Are your and parents really, really thick? <laughs> this is an interesting question. And I'm not surprised that you asked me this because a lot of people think that people who join cults are, you know, uh, come from terrible backgrounds, have addiction problems. Actually, people who join cults tend to be middle class, white and educated people who are looking for something else and i don't want to draw any dispersions on people who you know go into alternative religions now but you know there's a massive wave of alternative religions now and i'm pretty sure if you look around your group there's probably a lot of people who are starting to believe in you know pretty wacky things because they want something else and a sense of purpose tom what do you believe in you believe in love don't you i can tell i think so yeah <laughs> you put me on the spot there joe just right, try and narrow it down do you mean religious wise do you mean yeah, do you believe in a religion? No. Do you believe in an, in a non-religion? <laughs> <laughs> do you think, Jay, here's another way of looking at it, um, because we meet lots of interesting people on this podcast and we have some amazing conversations and it sometimes changes the way we look at the world. Do you think you would be inadvertently open to a bit of brainwashing? Someone came in here super charismatic who offered you how does this work basically they offer you solutions to your problems or yeah. like a dream that that matches your dream yeah they give you a sense of purpose you, they, you find your people within this group within an instant all the shit that we're worrying about is taken away what am i doing with my life i don't want to pay my gas bill oh my god i've got taxes all of that is taken from you you're reborn with a sense of purpose and also you're actually told that you're better than everyone else because they haven't found the way yet that's quite an intoxicating idea you know to begin with that sense of like oh my goodness i have found the one it's like falling in love that's how a lot of people describe it i want to join a cult <laughs> i don't want to join that fucking weird shit one i'm afraid what was it children of god yeah fuck off <laughs> family initiation what's it called family international family yeah. international like a bit of flirty fishing or they can all fucking rot horrible <laughs> i just want to join a nice cult where <laughs> We make coffee. Yeah. Um, I like the no taxes bit, so I don't know how we can work that one out. 
Um, in fact, can we form our own cult? I was just going to say, oh, this feels like... What would be a good like, name, Betsy? How about the mothers and daughters of the sons and fathers or something like that? That's good. You know, something that feels a bit like a folk band or, yeah. you know, Hang children on. of the, the light and daughters. of the sons and fathers, which I think we probably all are. And that is a very good sell because when you first approach someone, you'd say, you're, you're part of this and you don't even realise. Yeah, exactly. You've are you a, a son or daughter of a mother yeah. or father? Everyone's got to say I'm yes. I'm baffled and by the, the strange name. thing is you've been a part of it since the day you were born. Whoa. Mothers and fathers, mothers and daughters of the sons and fathers. No. <laughs> I think that's number one rule of starting a cult is nail the name. Yes, yeah, so, so I'm confused on the name, so I'm already out of the cult. What the fuck? What, what, no, it's all right. You can come back in. We're, we're open arms. Oh, fuck. There's so much culture that it's already bamboozled my mind. And it's, it's already made me go, I could quite easily join a cult. Listen, welcome home. Oh my god! <laughs> You've got that voice as well. That, surely that's one of the the key things to forming a cult: the leader being like charismatic and mm. having a voice yeah. that's yeah. really calm and drawing mm. or attractive or yeah. something to be able to persuade people, like a nanny who talks <laughs> really slow. Have you just described cult leaders as nannies. <laughs> what did David Berg sound like? So if he was weaselly, he didn't have a charismatic voice at all. No. So how did he? How how do you end up forming a cult with someone that isn't charismatic? This is the baffle. This is the baffle, and that that's the kind of that moment um, at that that I did have a look at that first picture. It did make me think, and I was like, I think thirteen at the time. It did make me go, oh my god, like. What have we all been doing? And I already had my doubts by that point. I already knew that things weren't right. I think it's something quite magical about kids that you can raise us in a separate environment and somehow we still have a sense of right and wrong. And, you know, that might get tarnished, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have psychopaths or sociopaths. But children have this magical sense of right and wrong. And even though I didn't know what the outside world was like, I still knew that what was happening wasn't okay from a very, very young age. Should we have a little break there and have some adverts and we'll be back in a bit with part two. Tom Fordyce, I never would have met you if it hadn't been for we didn't start the fire. Katie Puckley, I thought I didn't want to learn anymore. I was wrong. What? What? And you know why we're learning so much? In 1950, the communist troops came to my province. Because this is the best history podcast you've ever listened to in your entire life? They shot him live in front of the whole village. My connection to Marilyn. Don't you love Brando? Richard Nixon. The H-bomb was so much more powerful. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire. We'll wait for you. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. It is, of course, that time in the pod where we thank our lovely patrons, the official sponsors of The Joe Marler Show. Graham Mackey D's McDermott. Matthias Reggie Elkin in the membrane. Andrew John Hampstead Heath. It's Ali B, Alistair Blacklaws. Chris, the billionaire, Getty. Lewis or Louis Morgan. And Ryan, there's no need to feel down, I said, young man. 
To be more like Graham, Matthias, Andrew, Alistair, Chris, Lewis and Ryan, go to patreon.com, search for Joe Marler Show and grow the show. What was the daily routine when you were a kid growing up? I mean, the daily routine sounds quite boring. We, as children, were the workforce. We were the ones that held the place together. The parents would go out and they would do their thing and they would, you know, preach and etc. try and recruit more people. And we were the ones who were looking after the babies. I mean, I ran a nursery at the age of nine. I ran a kitchen at the age of 10. And when I say ran a kitchen, I mean, I planned the meals. I cooked the meals for 100 people twice a day as a 10-year-old. And, um, you know, so we were so grown up because, and it's not unusual, all over the world, kids work from a very young age. It's only in kind of Western society that they don't have responsibility till they're like, you know, 35. But we essentially were the worker bees. And I remember my parents kept saying, you know, the children are a gift from God. And it's, you know, you look backwards and you're like, were we a gift from God or were we just really useful? I mean, I'm one of 12 kids. You know, twelve. Yeah, yeah. I've got eleven brothers and sisters, and that's are they all not, like whole? I don't. As in, if I was counting the ones that are my half brothers and sisters, I think we're around uh, sixteen, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that. But um, but yeah, we're what? massive. We're massive, massive, massive family. I'm number six, so as a middle child as you can get, <laughs> middle child, uh, which yeah. probably explains <laughs> a lot. Number six, is the middle child. <laughs> it's probably child. why the you know the rest of them have like lovely normal jobs, and I'm sitting here chatting with you guys. What's wrong with uh, sitting here chatting with us? <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm saying, but it's quite middle child behaviour, isn't it? Um, but yeah, um, so, you know, we was we were just so useful. But the things that I think that are probably more interesting than our kind of daily routine, which was like a well-oiled machine, the same every single day, because you cannot give people within a cult time to think, have that freedom of thought, start to question. You've got to keep them purposeful and you've got to keep them exhausted. That's the way it works. And I knew that from even when I, you know, the, the groups that I've joined since then, it's the same formula everywhere. Keep people busy, keep them tired. Don't give them any time to question because as soon as you start to question, you come out of the collective identity and you might start going, why am I picking kale for, you know, 10 hours a day? But for us as children, probably what was what might be more interesting to you as in the differences between our childhoods, and maybe maybe you might have thought this too, we were raised to believe that we were going to be X-Men. You know, we were raised to believe that we would have superpowers and that we were going to fight in the end time wars and that we were going to be martyrs in this massive battle that was going to happen and take seven years and we were all going to die within that and I've got to say you know when you're raised to believe that you're going to have lasers coming out of your eyes and you're going to breathe fire which is what we were told and what I 100% believed because why wouldn't I and then you turn into a teenager puberty hits no lasers come no fire comes it's absolutely gutting yeah that's really upsetting (laughs) it's gutting isn't it yeah instead of lasers you get a period exactly you're like oh well this is devastated this is what i hadn't been promised yeah this is this is not the promise but that sounds great yeah as in as a kid you're like yeah this is fucking brilliant and you believe it all totally and but we were told we were the chosen ones so imagine the contrast in being told that you're the chosen one and that you're going to have these superpowers but what you're doing on a day-to-day basis is you're completely controlled you're being punished in horrendous ways and you are the workforce, but you'll be, you keep being told that you're the chosen one and that you're so lucky to have been born where you've been born. And we were like, are we? Are we lucky? Yeah, this 10 on? hours a day of picking kale doesn't feel that yeah, lucky. Yeah, I mean, that's what I did as an adult in one of the cults I joined in the United States. We didn't hang have on, kale to pick. Hang on, you've, that's the second time. You you left this cult. And I joined 10 more. I know, that's You bananas, left this it? cult at what age? <laughs> 15. And you joined another cult. So, yeah, it's it's not complicated. I basically got to a point when I was around 27 years old where I had left the group and I had just gone, fuck that. I changed my name, my accent, 
I, you know, went to school. I got a career. I became a different person, basically, because I had to. I wanted to find out who I was. And I hit about 27 years old and I was, you know, taking drugs, drinking, working 80-hour weeks. I was, you know, super ambitious, very creative. I was already a creative director at a young age, but I was not sleeping at all. And I was hitting it hard and hitting everything hard just so that I didn't have to face the fact of where I'd come from. And it got to a point where I couldn't hide from it anymore. Every time I closed my eyes to go to sleep, I was back in the cult. And I just got to a point where I was like, I can't hide from this anymore. This is where I'm from and I have to do something about it. I, I thought, I'll, I'll make a documentary about it. I'll start to explore it from other people's angles because that's the only way that I know how to process stuff is through things like that. How do I make sense of it? It's not through me, for sure. I won't look at my parents and I won't look at my history. I'll look at other people's, which obviously, retrospectively, it didn't work out like that because I had to look at myself. I unfortunately had to get into my own shit to like process it. But I bought a truck in San Francisco, got, took my camera equipment, found one of my friends who was bonkers enough to come with me, who was a film student that I'd met in Berlin. And we were just like, fuck it, let's, um, let's go around knocking on doors and join some cults. I'll tell them who I am, as in I would say, I'm a filmmaker, but I won't film until you tell me that I can. Um, and we will experience your way of life. And of course, of course, because all these groups are trying to recruit, they let us stay. But essentially what started happening was we were just like staying in cults for like up to six weeks, you know, becoming part of their workforce and like doing all of their rituals and picking kale in their fields and, you know, starting to assimilate into like weirdly. And this is what always creeps me out. When I joined one of these groups, the 12 tribes, which was very reminiscent to mine, Armageddonist group. It was like one of the first nights I'd had a really good night's sleep in about 10 years. And we were out in this compound in the middle of nowhere. And even thinking about it now gives me the creeps that where all of a sudden my brain was like, okay, now you're allowed to have some sleep. This is very familiar territory. And it was like, oh, God. Luckily, the nightmares came back. So, you know, that made me me feel better about it. (laughs) That sentence, luckily, the nightmares came back. A memoir, um, <laughs> but no, it was. Um, it, yeah, there were there were a lot of a lot of similarities between the between the different groups that I joined, and I did it because I had this sense of purpose of like trying to understand my shit. And you know, if you read the book, you'll find out that actually I joined all of I joined ten cults and then ended up going. Actually, what I have to do is confront my parents. Gutted. So when you joined those ten cults, you uh, like you just described that. At times, you forgot you were there to film. Yeah, well, because or, or there to like learn more and process yeah. your shit through their shit. We never and you once ended up slipping into being part of the cult again. We never once were tricked into thinking that we were part of a cult. We were never once. There was never a point where we were like, "Oh, now we're in it." It was just because of the fact that we were. I was so desperate to try and get this footage, and I was so desperate with my purpose of like, do something with your trauma that. I allowed us to stay in places for too long with the hope that we would film. And some of these places, and this is probably the reason why this is a book and not a documentary, some of these places where the most weird stuff happened, we never filmed anything because we weren't allowed to. So imagine having like this kind of almost four-year experience and joining all of these groups and having footage which isn't representative of what you experienced and what you went through, which is why I ended up writing a book. I, I ended up canning the documentary because I was watching it and I was like I don't feel anything I don't feel what I felt when I was in there I I can't and I also I didn't want to be in it I I did everything I could to not be a part of this story until the day that I put the camera down and I was like okay it's not about that it's about confronting my parents and actually allowing that kid who was had her voice taken from her stolen from her because I don't know if you guys know this I was put on 
silence restriction for a year when I was 10 years old. Which means? Which means I wasn't allowed to speak for a year. A year? A year. A yeah. year? Yeah, a year. Well, it was 11 months. 12 months? months. It, was a, it was 11 months, but, you know. A year. Six yeah. or one. But, yeah, so for 11 months, essentially, of not being able to speak. And, you know, this was an un, wasn't an unusual punishment. But I, I, I remember watching one of my favourite films, Eat, Pray, Love. Julia Roberts. Yeah, Julia Roberts. Yeah, really I good. haven't seen it. Oh, well, she goes and tries to discover herself in... India? I think it was India. I'm she's going to take a wild stab. And she, Yeah, I think it was India. And she, as part of it, she had to go on silence. It makes me laugh because, like, you know, I'm interested in the world of, well, of wellness, but I, my radar for bullshit is extremely high, as in, like, the charlatan side of wellness. I, I'm like, okay, cool. If you're an adult and you decide, and this is no diss on anyone who's, like, finding their way and trying out stuff, absolutely go for it. Like, go and be on silence, etc. But it always makes me laugh when I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that because I was forced to do it for an entire year as a punishment. So, like, if you want to pay, like, 600 quid to go and be quiet somewhere, like, good, <laughs> good for you. And, like, if you want to go somewhere and have your demons cast out of you, these are very real things that have happened to me in like really you know quite traumatic ways like I had my first exorcism at the age of nine years old and then I had this sinus restriction for a year so when people tell me like oh yeah I'm gonna go and take ayahuasca in a garage in Essex and then I'm gonna have my (laughs) demons cast out of me I'm like sure enjoy but I'm probably gonna take a hard pass exorcism at nine (laughs) just casually threw that in fucking hell mate what happened with us and why we were put through things like these Um, exorcisms and why we were put through things like silent treatment and you know a whole bunch of other stuff like public beatings like isolation all kinds of things that you just wouldn't do to kids was because there came a point where the kids started to rebel within the group and there was like this this kind of seed change where the teenagers were you know getting bigger than the adults and were starting to go hang on a second, this isn't right. So what they did was create these camps, these victor camps, they called them. And they put the teenagers in and they put some of the kids in, which was me because I was considered to be a rotten apple. And they put us into these camps where we were just put under these extreme forms of um, punishments, isolation, etc., as I just said, to create stronger soldiers for for the end time. And I asked my parents about this, like, why did you allow this to happen? And my dad just simply went, well, we were told that it worked in the Philippines. So we said, yeah, go for it. So they were creating these methods in different groups and they were sharing them around between all of the, the communities. And then they were just, you know, blindly doing whatever they were told to do to us. And I don't mean to be flippant when I talk about these things like discipline and stuff like that. You know, there's nothing flippant about... Um, what they did to the children within the group. That was a whole generation of us that kind of slipped under the radar. Social services didn't know we were. We were in hidden communes and these things were happening to us in this country. That's where this... I had My, my exorcism happened outside of rugby. Hang on, what? Outside of rugby? Outside what of rugby. Happened? What? what's a fucking exorcism? (laughs) Well, it depends. There's many ways to do it. For my one, essentially, was I got caught lying and they decided to change my name to Rebecca the Deceiver. And essentially all they did, that that there wasn't any potions or any smoke and fire, none of the cool stuff that you get in, like, Catholic Church, you know, none of the traditional, like, smoke and mirrors and fancy bits. It was more me crouched over in the middle of a living room while I had the entire community putting their hands on me, speaking in tongues and casting out my evil demons. Now, you know, it sounds... Sounds dramatic. And it, it sounds scary. It was as fuck. 
really scary. Yeah. And I had and I had what I know now was my first panic attack during that experience. Like at the time, I couldn't verbalize it. I just thought that I was dying because my lungs were collapsing in on themselves. And the thing that's what I had to unpick as an adult, because you know. I could be quite flippant about these experiences when I was in my 20s. You know, I was trying to like just get over it. So I, you know, be drinking. I'd be, oh, yeah, I had an exorcism and just like pretend like it was all cool. And then what I had to unpick in the last few years was like, well, what did that exorcism do to me? I had everybody in my community telling me that I had a demon inside me. And then I'm an adult trying, struggling with these feelings, which potentially we all kind of feel, which is I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And at, at the core of that, am I evil? Because that's what I was told. And I had to really untrain that out of myself because rituals work for a reason. It's such a primal thing. So when you have all, you know, that's why marriage, I was going to say marriage works. It, it does. But, you know, that's why you stand in front of your friends and you say, I love this person because it has that impact on you. And what this did, this impact of this exorcism, it left me with a feeling for the next, you know, 20 years that I, at the core of me, was an evil person. And in reality, I'm actually pretty fucking nice. And I was like... Can I make that call at the end of... of no. Of course you can. Yeah, no, cool. But I'm, like, I'm interested about this year of silence again that you said you were, you were punished for. Yeah. Right, so 11 months of pretty much no speaking at all. Did so, you, did you like, hide at all, like, in a toilet no, or somewhere? No, there wasn't any room Just end up talking to yourself? There wasn't any room for that. I escaped through my imagination, and I know people say that, but, like, I mean, I've got a really vivid imagination. I would I would create characters, I would create ghosts, I would have, like... And I would have these full kind of, like, conversations and experiences with, you know... and. Some people might describe that as probably losing your mind a little bit, but that's, yeah, potentially. But, you know, I did have these experiences of, of you know, otherworldliness within that year because I had no one to talk to, so I created my own escape. But essentially, it wasn't just about not being able to talk. When I was on, when you're on science restriction, you have to wear a, a sign around your neck that says, I'm on science restriction, please do not talk to me. For like 11 months, it's like, come on, guys, everyone knows. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's essentially like being branded with the scarlet letter, which again has an effect on you. You're not allowed to make eye contact. You're not allowed to use hand signals. You're not allowed to laugh or do any form of communication. And that, I think, was almost more um, damaging than not being able to speak because you walk into a room and everyone looks down or you have to constantly look down. So while I was in a commune of about 100 people... I was completely invisible for that year. And, you know, and I, I wasn't the only child on this. There was, you know, plenty of us. There was like 21 of us that were put on science restriction within the space of a week. And then everyone got, you know, different forms of punishment, etc. But, you know, it was when I say that what I had to do was go and confront my parents. I think a big part of it was that little girl, that 10 year old me who needed that experience of being able to speak her truth. And I know that's such an overused term, but really when you've had the year taken from you as a child and you need to kind of like, actually, I had to let her speak. I let I had to let her let my parents know what that experience was like, how I experienced what they you, did to me. Do you remember the first day that you did speak again? Uh, absolutely. 100%. What was the first thing you said? Hey. You went with so, hey. Yeah. You had a year so, of No, but listen, <laughs> listen. And then you went... <laughs> You could have picked any word in the world to really start again. You went with hey. Well, let me give you an explanation as to it. So basically, I was never taken off science restriictions, so I shouldn't really be speaking to you now. Well, that would make a really, really <laughs> shit podcast. Crap podcast. <laughs> like, but, this uh, is a bad podcast yeah. as it is. <laughs> that would make it bad. Imagine. We essentially, we, jo- we moved Commune out of this camp that we were in. 
And I was never taken off silence restriction, but I saw this girl who was my age, wild-eyed, frizzy-haired, who was also on, on silence restriction. And I could see that there was something like, you know when you have a connection with somebody? And I was told I had to sleep in her, we were sharing a bed, a bunk bed. And I'd never, like, you know, to share a bed with someone you don't know is a bit weird. Anyway, but especially if you can't talk to them. And I climbed into bed and I hadn't talked to anyone for nearly a year. And as I climbed in, this girl, Maria, who was on silence restriction as well, turned around to me in the dark and she just went, hey. And I was like, hey. And it was the first thing I'd said in nearly a year and it's the first time anyone's spoken to me in all that time. So even though it I, sounds silly, I, it actually, even when I think about it now, it makes me feel really emotional. because I feel like crying. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Um, because it was a really, I don't know what's <laughs> it was a really important moment. That, I it, feel like that's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and so it, I've gone from like mocking the choice of word to now crying about the, <laughs> <laughs> the choice of word and how it went down. That is yeah. just so sad, mm, but beautiful but in a way. Also, really, really warming. That yeah, she turned she, around and went. She's ah. still my best friend now. Unbelievable. Yeah. I spent when I was in Margate writing the book. I was with her. So, you know, it was a friendship. that She was my first real friend and we started talking in secret together and we just built this bond. And, you know, now we've, you know, obviously both left and we're still, you know, thick as thieves now. So it was an important, it was a really important moment. It was my, you know, it was my escape route out of there as well. So when you finally confront your parents, first of all, where were they? Were they in this country? And then did you plan ha- what you were going to say to them? Because there must have been so much stuff bubbling up inside you. Yeah, do you know what? I had to really plan it. I had to really plan it because I'd tried it already twice. I tried to confront them twice and it both with horrendous ramifications just for my mental health because I challenge anyone to kind of confront their parents and get it right. It is so hard to look at the two people that, you know, there's the conflicting feelings of they raised me and I can remember moments of kindness within them raising me and then I can also see them as the biggest source of my pain, you know, but they gave birth to me and I'm half of both of them and yet, you know, they're the people that have hurt me more than anyone else in the world. So we tried to confront them as a family years before. All of my brothers and sisters who were out got together and confronted my parents and said, we need you to give us the last remaining kid that's in the group. And if you do that, we'll forgive you for everything. And my parents went, we'll pray about it. And we were like, all right, then fuck you. Fast forward five years. And this is when I did my first confrontation with them. And this is the midpoint of the book where I try to confront them. But I think that I've forgiven them. I think I've become like that woke that I've like forgiven my parents. And I can just have this confrontation from a place of like love and compassion fuck that it didn't work out and it made me realize that actually I had forgiven nothing and I was like oh you know fuck I I, I haven't forgiven a god I've done I've joined by this point five cults been all exploratory oh yeah I'm super objective was I fuck I looked at these people and I was reduced to being a little girl and I wanted to be powerful I wanted to be like oh my god I'm a warrior woman and I was reduced to nothing and after they left I like slipped into this depression for like a couple of months because I hadn't been able to let myself just be comfortable with the fact that I hadn't forgiven them and maybe I never would and that would be okay so when I finally confront them and this is the last chapter of the book and they came over to the UK for like a couple of weeks and I met up with them what I realized I needed to do and I don't know if you guys know this but my parents were actually the public face of the children of God they were the PR for the children of God so while my dad and you know again big statement my dad isn't a pedophile 
which is, you know, can be quite unusual for someone who's raising the children of God. And it's something that I feel very lucky for. And I don't say that flippantly because a lot of the kids we grew up with, their dads were. Um, my dad and mom still were the public face of a group that essentially at one point was a functioning paedophile ring. So while I can forgive them for things that they did to me specifically, and I can come from that sense of compassion, I will never forgive a person that has done something like that because categorically that is unforgivable. You cannot... You cannot protect a group and have a, a generation of kids within it that are going through these traumatizing experiences. You cannot protect the group and not protect these children and ever be forgiven for that, in my in my opinion. So I've forgiven them for what they've done for me, but what they have done, the crimes they've committed against this generation of children, that's not for me to forgive, is it? So I realized, especially because my parents are smart weirdly and my parents were the public face and they are quite slippery and they're very good talkers of like being able to get themselves out of any situation because they're publicly you know PR trained I realized when I did this confrontation that what I needed to do was not allow them to speak this wasn't about them it wasn't like hey mom and dad let's have a conversation and why don't you start trying to give me excuses for what happened I actually needed them to shut the fuck up for once and to listen to what that child went through this is how I experienced what you did to us. This was my experience of being on sinus restriction. And I did have to plan it. But what I wanted to do was speak from the heart because I didn't want to turn into... It's really easy when you get into... Well, for me, anyway, when you get into kind of confrontational experiences to like either clam up or become someone else or be defensive. And actually, I, I needed to be open-hearted, but I needed to be firm with what that kid actually needed it was what, more about her i think what about the the other kids around your age or older or just the, the other kids that you grew up with and their approach to their parents or what what did they go on and do? I mean, did they confront their parents there's or what different everyone has different reactions to being raised in a group i mean some kids are still in deep trauma some kids and this is the most horrible but there's been so many suicides from kids from my group and that's not surprising I'm, like if you think about what we went through the the david berg's son Rodriguez Davidito, who I only met once when growing up, he actually, and this is such a horrific story, but I think really kind of poignantly shows how corrupt and damaging this man was. He ended up tracking down the woman who was pictured sexually abusing him within the Davidito book, which is the book that they brought out of How to Raise Children, which was full of sexual abuse. And I know gone really dark. And he ended up tracking down the woman from the from the photograph and he went to her house and he tried to get her to say sorry and he ended up killing her. And then he went outside. Originally he was planning on tracking down his mom, Mama Maria, who's still the leader of the cult now, because he wanted to kill her too. And he filmed himself outside of her house and he ended up shooting himself because he just he was like, She wouldn't say sorry. She wouldn't say sorry. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, talking about it, it's given me like goosebumps because it's such a horrendous thing to have happened. And this boy was considered to be the, the role model of how to raise kids and look at how it ended up. So, you know, I, I do joke about stuff and I, you know, put things into uh, into dark humour because that's how I deal with what happened. But at the core of it, there are some absolutely horrendous things that happened to children that should have never, ever happened and cannot be whitewashed. And Rodriguez Davidito is probably one of the most darkest examples of that. All these, all these people that you've spoken about that are still part of part of the cult why aren't why isn't something done about them why aren't they locked up why aren't they 
What? It's why a, can't we go over to where Davidito Rodriguez Davidito's mum is? Yeah, and beat fuck out of her, and then get her arrested because of. Well, because most of these guys are in hiding. Like you can't. Like most of the most cult leaders aren't. Their public their addresses are known, and also it's really difficult to take a cult to court because you want to take an individual to court rather than a, a corporation because all the corporation does and um, use the term loosely is exactly what the children of God does they were the children of God then they were the family of love and then they were the family international and they rebrand it's like you know a company going into bankruptcy and rebranding themselves it's really really difficult that somebody did take our group to court when I was around 12 years old in the UK and they tried essentially the children of god had to denounce all the teachings of david Berg, but that meant nothing that means nothing does it and to take to take a person to court is different but what we grew up with was all the adults were anonymous because they'd all given themselves different names no one knew the surnames or real names but there are um about t- 10 cases roughly of people who have taken individuals from the children of god to court and have won and there's an incredible incredible woman called Hope Baptiste who I just admire so much she took her dad to court and he is convicted now and he is behind bars and he is like one of the only cases within the UK of someone from the children of God being actually sentenced to uh, go to prison and I remember what, the day that it happened because I was following the case at the time because I just the, the the tenacity and bravery of this warrior woman to be able to do that to take her own dad to court is just incredible and like I remember the, the the policeman who was involved the detective saying we want this to be a lesson to or, or a, a kind of warning or, or an example to everyone out there that they, that there is no such thing as too long when it comes to convicting somebody of child abuse and there is no such thing as borders because we will find you and when he said that I was just like oh my god this is what I want to hear. This is what we need to hear. Because if you grew up like I grew up, you think that you can never do it. You think that it's a hopeless case because everyone was anonymous. You know, the children, we we weren't anonymous, but the adults were. So there are those cases are amazing that they've happened. And um, I think she's just one of the, you know, most incredible badasses out there. Um, Yeah. Joe, as I'm listening to Bexy's stories, I don't know about how you're feeling. I'm finally, I'm putting myself in the position of those kids like listening to your stories Bexie I'm thinking how would I have coped with the year of silence or things like that how are you feeling about this Joe? I've got so much anger inside me I've got so much sadness and I guess there's pity not pity but sympathy empathy all stirring round but mainly the anger one and yet none of this happened to me and I just can't get my head around it all but I guess that's part of how cults work that it's it's not logical but how the, how does someone go from being a rational human being thinking normally to then just being sucked in by some form of cult with a crazy idea it's just I can't get my head around it it's baffling do you find yourself thinking how you know, because most people have a complicated relationship with at least one parent. Listening to Bexy, have you started thinking about your relationship with your parents? Yeah, it has stirred up all those emotions in me um, and the resentment towards them. And thinking, But I just try and put more focus and energy on, on things forward with my children and not want to be what they were. 
So fuck knows how you like my admiration for you and the way you've dealt with things is through the roof because I can't even come close to comparing my issues or or my relationships I, I had with my parents. It's interesting that you say that though because I think one of the things I was really hoping for um, and not to be too dark or maudlin about it was I think that while my experience is against the backdrop of something really weird like we can all agree that the, the themes of what I experienced are universal feelings of being betrayed, abandonment, confusion about parents, having to, you know, f- trying to find forgiveness, figuring out whether you have or not. And that's something that I think connects us all. You know, whatever your experience is, my backdrop's different, but the actual stuff I went through, we probably have much more similarities than you think. But even people who trust affairians, I don't know anyone who really kind of rolled down a golden road of like wonderful childhood and then just became an adult and there's no issues. And actually people who haven't suffered any trauma at all, that can fuck you up more than anything, you know, because you don't know how to deal with it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're thrown into something that completely floors you. But I think that there are so many things in my story that that connect to kids everywhere and adults everywhere. And I, you know, you talking about your parents now, sometimes you have to make the choice of what is right for your mental health. Because I think we're told by society that we should just forgive and that we should all play nicely and that we should, of course, you should speak to your parents. Perhaps if your parents aren't a good influence on you, perhaps if your parents make you feel unhappiness or bring up stuff or trigger you, then you don't need to be around your parents. And you can make that choice as an adult, which is brilliant. That's why we have free will. You're allowed to create your own family as an adult. And maybe that is your children. Maybe that's your friends, however you want to do it. But I surround myself with people who are nourishing and encourage me and support me and help me flourish. I couldn't have done any of the things I've done over the last 10 years without the incredible support of my friends who are my family my brothers and sisters and when I looked at the effect my parents have on me it's not good and they aren't particularly good people and even if they're good people to other people how they are with me isn't so I think that we're all allowed to make that decision and we shouldn't be you know ashamed of the fact that you know I don't believe in this catch-all idea of forgiveness as a blanket statement because I think sometimes that can be quite dangerous to think that we all just have to forgive that doesn't come from a place of bitterness at all it comes from a place of going okay actually understand that it's complicated and that sometimes forgiveness works in waves sometimes one day I'll forgive and the next day you won't and that's all right as well can we have a quick break please mate cheers you all right yeah sorry See what we'll do. We'll call this part one, and then we'll carry on a minute, and we'll maybe have a second part to this episode. So you've been listening to part one, and we'll do part two in a bit. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Podcast Network.